invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We finished up Hebrews 11 and 12, 1 through 3 last week, um, but we're just going to read starting at 12, 1 because it's worth repeating. But our focus this week is on the rest of the chapter 12, and there's kind of three movements within it. There's a section about discipline, so hold on to that. There's a quick word about roots that grow within us, and then there's a contrast between two different mountains. And just to fill it in, um, because Hebrews assumes a really high-level understanding of the Old Testament already, um, the two mountains are Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, which was a pretty intense and almost scary time, and the other mountain is Mount Zion, this vision of Christ's return, as Hebrews would say. We need to understand the Old Testament in light of the new. We've got Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. And we've got Mount Zion, which has an amazing description here in Hebrews chapter 12. And so as we come before God's word, let us pray for God to be alive within it. There's a reason that we pray before the reading of the word every week. And it's because we believe that God's Holy Spirit moves in a special and particular way through the word, the testimony of who God is and our salvation through Jesus Christ. And so our prayer is for God to move, that the words on the pages, the pixels on the screen, however you're accessing Hebrews 12 today, is the word of God living and active for us. So let's pray. God, may you move in ways that discipline us, in ways that encourage us, but ultimately in ways which give us a greater vision of who you are, Jesus, that you may show us your ways, you may speak to us your truth, that you may be our life and our light. This, we pray, may be the movement of your Holy Spirit through your word in our hearts and in our minds, that we may have ears to hear, hands to serve, and hearts to love you and to love our neighbor. So move within us and around us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In the holy name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, it's just good wording, so we'll start with, with verse 1. And so this is a good phrase, this is a good long chapter, but it's worth hearing in its entirety. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those listed in Hebrews 11 and more, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate 
not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who hear it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews 12, verse 15, tells us, kind of right in the middle of the chapter, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When I read those words in that verse, no bitter root, my mind goes to one particular plant. They know what this one is? Nuts hedge. Nuts hedge is the worst. And by taste, the roots are not actually bitter. You can eat different parts of this plant, as is true of many plants. But it's not a bitter-to-the-taste kind of root, but it is a root that makes me bitter. This is, this is the plant to embody 
Hebrews 12, 15. No bitter root. And why am I so bitter about nutsedge? I mean, it's an edible plant, right? Because of the roots. Once nutsedge appears in your garden, you are going to fight a hopeless battle for the rest of the summer until harvest is done and the first frost finally kills this with everything else with it. Because when you pull nutsedge, as I pulled these this morning out of my garden, it looks like you got stem, root, and tendril all in one, except nutsedge is a tricky bitter root because it has dormant rhizomes that have already spread. And so whenever you pull one out from where it is, a few dormant rhizomes wake up and take its place and shoot up where it was. In Greek mythology, there was the monster, the hydra. If you cut off one head, two more take its place. Nutsedge is the hydra of garden pest plants. It is a root that spreads, and it is a root that will make you bitter because pick at it all you want, and it will just keep coming back. Even when you think you've got it all, there's a little more left, and it's going to sprout up before too long. Nutsedge is the plant that makes me the most bitter in weeding my garden, and honestly, it's the plant that makes me most likely to give up weeding the garden altogether. If you do look over that way at some point, you'll notice uh, looks like the DeVrieses have given up for this season. There's still a lot of Roma tomatoes there, so if you do need any, let us know and we will deliver them to you. But we just kind of are done with the nutsedge. The bitter roots they're impossible to deal with. When I read that in Hebrews 12, 15, and even as I reflect on those words while occasionally weeding our garden, I think about bitter roots not growing up because they cause trouble and defile many. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline to keep our gardens healthy, to keep them free of weeds so that the good fruit may actually flourish. And it's not like nutsedge grows in the convenient places. Bitter roots in our heart and soul and nutsedge in a garden will grow in the most inconvenient places so that it's hard to deal with. It makes me think of Matthew 13. It starts with the parable of the sower, but then goes over to the parable of the wheat and the weeds that a farmer, of course, sowed good seed, but then his enemy came in at night and sowed in, for our purposes today, nutsedge. And then, looking at the plants, the workers were saying, what should we do? Should we clear out all the weeds? And the gardener, the master, says, no. An enemy has done this, and if we try to pull them all up, we'll damage the good stuff in trying to get rid of the bad. So we just got to wait until the end of the harvest. So we do our best. We pull at the weeds that are too close to our plants. We fight against the rest. And honestly, it is a reminder that willpower alone cannot conquer bitter roots. But conveniently, I have a gift from my father. Upon my parents' retirement, they gave us some non-selective herbicide leftovers from the farm. And let me tell you, that stuff will eliminate nutsedge with great prejudice. But no bitter root to grow up among you. We can visualize a garden. Many of us here have grown some plants or have a garden. But I invite us to consider today the garden of your own heart and soul. And I ask you, in all seriousness, what bitter roots are in you, in your garden? Because willpower alone will not take care of bitter roots. And sometimes we'll think we've got it all. We'll think that we've got that bitterness or that particular sin or that addiction under wraps. We've gotten all of our feelings out about that relationship in which we felt harmed or wronged. 
And then we think we've got it all, but there's a bitter root still deeper down yet, and it's just waiting to shoot something back up. No bitter root. To deal with bitter roots takes constant maintenance, takes a lot of discipline, and a fighting battle that often feels like we're losing. What bitter roots are alive in you? They can take all kinds of different forms. They, there's no exhaustive list other than to read the entire Bible to get a sense of these bitter roots that grow into our hearts, that they're there to choke out the fruit. They're there to not just defile us, but to defile those around us. Make sure that no bitter root grows up among you that causes trouble and defiles many. This is the falling short of the grace of God. And so how do we tend our gardens? How do we tend the garden of our heart and soul with our own bitter roots that can take all their different forms? Well, it takes a lot of discipline. And Hebrews has a lot of assurance about discipline, that, that discipline is a good thing. It is a good thing and it's worth it because discipline from God is given to those whom he loves. And so we endure even hardship. We say, you know what, the hardship of this world, I will endure as if discipline, that God can teach me something through it. Now, I want to be really careful about one thing, and maybe for some of you it was going through your mind as we read through the text this morning. There are some absolutes that are played to and some idealisms played to in the section of Hebrews 12 about discipline. We can read through and say, well, that's not 100% accurate. Verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. And we could say, there's people who did not grow up with a father or a father figure disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Well, that's not always true. Some people did not respect their father or their mother for any kind of discipline. But we're speaking to a certain idealism here, and also to a pattern that we're trying to pattern after God's relating to us. And so here's the, the mark in the sand of the text that I want to offer that I think Hebrews and us would agree, because we read with a modern lens a letter that was written a couple thousand years ago. Discipline is always for the betterment of the recipient. Discipline given is for the benefit and betterment of the one receiving discipline. That's discipline. That is a coach telling you to take one more lap. That is an instructor telling you to run the play one more time, to run through the music one more time. That is discipline meant for your betterment so that you grow into a better flourishing. Discipline is distinctly different from abuse. Where discipline is for the betterment of the recipient, abuse is for the benefit, albeit an unhealthy benefit, of the one giving it. Discipline benefits the recipient. Abuse is for the unhealthy benefit of the one giving it. And I think Hebrews would agree with us on this. Because we even have in verse 10, they, are earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Meaning we gave it our best attempt. Punishment is maybe where we have to be careful, that our punishment actually comes from discipline and the desire to see restoration and growth, and that it doesn't come from a place of dealing our own anger and frustration out on our children, because that's not a picture that we have of God. We ought to resist with all care reading texts like this with any kind of leading thought that paints God as abusive or as taking out something unhealthy on us for God's betterment. God needs no betterment. Holy discipline is for our benefit, and though it is painful and unpleasant at the time, it is for our growth. 
this is the picture that Hebrews paints of how we understand God's discipline. And that then when hardships in life come about, we don't ascribe them to God to say, now what sin did I commit that God did this to me? What sin did they commit that God did that to them? No, I think we find our foundational leveling off with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, who was mistreated and sold into slavery by his brothers, who then lied about it. But when they finally made amends with one another in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. What you intended for evil, God used for good. And if we encounter the world as a place where we're going to endure hardship that we can learn from and grow from, then we look at the trials of the world and not say, God inflicted this on me. God is out to get me. God is somehow abusive. No, no, no. But rather we look and say, what you, the world, what you, the devil, intended for evil, God still used for good that I could grow from it, that I could endure I don't ascribe one-to-one -one of, we did this, so God did that to us. But rather, what God uses for good might not have come from a great place to begin with. What you intended for evil, God used for good. And what is the good that God wants us to do? God wants our discipline to result in a better harvest, that we're working away at our bitter roots with Christ's help that we get to the end of verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The discipline of weeding your garden or the discipline of attending your own heart and soul as its own garden is meant to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. And then in verse 14, when we're shifting from discipline over to this encouragement and warning about bitter roots. We've just heard that there's a harvest of righteousness and peace, and then we hear, make every effort to live in peace, to live into the harvest of what God has done in your life. But then the bitter roots come into play. What's the goal here for God? Is it to just needlessly, effortless, with lots of effort, but fruitlessly pull up nuts edge for the rest of our lives? I don't actually believe in purgatory, but if I did, I actually picture purgatory as a place where you just keep picking nuts edge indefinitely, and by the time you get done with the field, you're starting over, and there's more already there. No, it's not for us to waste our time. It is for us to grow, and it's for a greater harvest. It's for a greater harvest so that we can embrace, that we can embrace what God has done. And it's to think about which mountain we're headed towards. At the end of chapter 12, we're given this contrast of the two mountains, the one that's super, super scary, the one that sounds like intimidating, that Moses was trembling with fear. If an animal went to Mount Sinai, they had to stone it to death, and people were begging that it could just stop. No more further words be spoken. But God says, that's not the mountain that we're headed towards. That's not the mountain that you're disciplining yourself towards. You, verse 22, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That's the vision that we work towards in discipline. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, I don't want to miss out on that. And if that's the goal, to embrace and to celebrate what Christ has done with angels in joyful assembly, with God our judge, who is also the mediator of a greater covenant, 
then man, I'm going to keep working on those bitter roots because I don't want these bitter roots to get in the way of the greater joy of Mount Zion as the picture and vision of what we've been called to. So how do we get there? What do we do? Because we can't do it on our own. If you can pull, you could use all of your power and strength to pull nuts edge, but it will not die. You could spray it, if you're so lucky, as a certain gift from your father, if I can play around with that wording a little bit. But rather, I wonder if in prayer, our best option is to picture ourselves, picture your life as a nice garden plot, however much gardening you think you can handle. Picture your life, all of your years, all of your endeavors, your occupation, your family, your relationships, all of that is one big garden. Your spiritual practices, your relationship with God, your closeness, your sense of worship, all of that is one big garden. And the theme of Hebrews is to draw near to Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Draw near to God and his throne. And Jesus will not stand far off and say, there is no way I'm getting into your garden. It looks overgrown and horrible and you should be ashamed of it. That's not the response that we get from Christ. We look at our garden and we get really honest about the mess that we might have, the bitter roots that we thought were taken care of but aren't, or the bitter roots that we as good people can hide really, really well. But they're still there. And we say, Jesus, help me. Help me with the bitter roots in my life so that I don't miss out on what you have intended for me. And let me tell you, folks, Jesus is a really, really good gardener. In John chapter 20, I love the little mistake that gets made when the women are looking for Jesus and they look and thinking that he was the gardener, says John chapter 20, 15. Thinking he was the gardener, she saw Jesus. But it was just Jesus who is also the gardener. It's not a mistake, it's actually an echo back to Genesis where our first occupation was agriculture and our first home was the garden invite jesus into that garden for he is the master gardener and though it might be like surgery a little bit painful jesus can dig deeper than we can on our own to get at the bitter roots and to say no more no more of this to choke out the joy that you're meant for in life or to get in the way of the peace of relationships that we ought to have because, friends, bitter roots will sprout up fast. And they don't need much space. They don't need much room. They don't need much food or encouragement. Bitter roots will be everywhere. And we come to Christ and say, Jesus, here's my garden plot. Here's my mess. I need you to help me garden. I need your power. I need your presence in my life to deal with the bitter roots. I need your help to grow the fruit that is, that is here, that's all the potential is there. I need you, Jesus, to garden with me. And Jesus does discipline us, does make us endure some things that might be painful and hard at the time, but also Christ comes near to us and doesn't tell us to be ashamed of our garden or embarrassed of the weeds that have grown up, but rather the picture of discipline the vision of mountains and the gardening of discipline that happens in between, I believe that Jesus comes near to us when we approach him. And Jesus could put his arm around you as you look at the garden of your life and all that it is and say, you know what? We've got some work to do, but let's do it together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.
Jesus, we come to you knowing that there will always be bitter roots. There will be hardship in life that will make us bitter. And yet we turn to you knowing that you do seek our betterment. Even what the world intends for evil, you, O Lord, can still use for good. So we pray. Help us to have the strength and courage to be honest about our gardens. Help us to identify the bitter roots that have grown up. And in our humanity, in our limited ability, to admit what are the things that we simply cannot deal with on our own. But we need you. So be our gardener. Be the one who stands alongside us as we do the hard work of the heart work, that you lend your hand to us, that you give us instruction, that you help us to endure the hard work of gardening the gardens of our souls, and that in all of this we might have the goal in our mind, that after we're done weeding the garden, we don't go to the scary mountain that everyone's afraid of, but rather that we get to celebrate the work being done and we get to go to Mount Zion. We get to go where there is the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. God, help us to garden well and to endure discipline as hardship, endure hardship as discipline that we might hold on to the hope that you have for us. Help us, Jesus, to confront our bitter roots, both now and forever, until you call us home to that joyful assembly of all the communion of saints. Amen.